you know, I signed up, and then a little later I got to looking at the details, and it was supposed to be an overview of the book. And I thought, oh, wow, what have I gotten myself into? But uh, hopefully tonight uh, what I have to share will be a blessing to you, and uh, we can study God's Word together. Uh, let's say a quick prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, we are so grateful for your love and for the good things that you give us. Father, for your word that shows us your will and your truth for our lives. Father, help me to share that word in a clear and concise way with my brothers and sisters that we all may be edified and built up in our faith. Help me and help all of this church family here as we look to grow together and look at the book of Romans. Here, so let me pray. Amen. So the city of Rome, let's give a little background here. The city of Rome was founded in 753 A.D. And the story goes that a mythical tradition uh, was uh, that Romulus, the son of the god Mars, uh, who was preserved physically both by a wolf and a shepherd's wife after he was forced out of his house by wicked relatives, he formed the city of Rome. So... Uh, thank goodness he got kicked out by his wicked relatives, or Rome wouldn't have existed, I guess. But, uh, you know, the city uh, is located in Italy, you knew that probably, and, and off the Tiber River. It was built on seven hills. Now, by the New Testament times, the city had grown to a population of about one million, and the majority of those being slaves. Uh, just to give you some idea, here is a model that someone created of ancient Rome. It's a few uh, years after the time period we're going to be looking at, but still, look how massive that looks. That's just one picture. We back up a little bit. That's a little more impressive. And then you look at the big picture of that model. Now, I don't know how many years it must have taken and how many people to put that together, but that's supposed to be the ancient city of Rome. And uh, it's just uh, huge. Uh, it was the center of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome, and attracted all kinds of different people with different religions. And they had estimated, uh, you can't accuse the Romans of not being religious, they had around 420 temples in the city of Rome. Now in uh, 49 AD, Claudius, the Roman emperor, expelled all the Jews from Rome. And here is, is a, a map giving you some ideas. Again, this is a few years after the time period that Paul, uh, we're thinking, wrote Romans. But that kind of gives you an idea of the uh, area that we're talking about and the size of the empire. But in 49 AD, Claudius, the Roman emperor, expelled all the Jews from Rome. Why? Well, because the Christians started to protest the Roman oppression and the persecution in Jerusalem, scattered the Jews, and some of them migrated to Rome and became violent, so you had this problem. Now, during Paul's second missionary... Uh, missionary journey, he met a Jewish couple who had been expelled, and this actually uh, gives some, some uh, uh, credence to uh, this history. Acts chapter 18, verse 1 says, uh, Aquila came to Corinth, was uh, with his wife Priscilla, we remember those two names, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. That's Acts chapter 18, verse 1. Now because of Claudius, the church in Rome was Gentiles only. No diversity whatsoever, but in 54 AD, Claudius died and the edict was repealed. So when the Christian Jews returned, of course you can imagine there was automatically some tension. The Gentile believers embraced God's grace, uh, but when the Jewish believers returned, they insisted on all of their traditions and the tension that we see throughout a lot of Paul's writings between the Jews and, and the Gentiles. 
uh, they see that great struggle in the book of Romans. Now, maybe this is the part of the reason why Paul desired to visit Rome and, and maybe why he was motivated to write the letter of Romans. I don't know if any of you have come across any, any answers to this, but I wondered, what, it doesn't really say, but what was Paul's motivation, big picture, for write, uh, going to a place he had never been and, and writing a letter to people he had never met before? All the other places he had been, Romans is unique in that fact. Um, and maybe this was one of those things that he had heard about these things going on, and so he wrote this letter uh, to them. The Gentile believers, oh, I already said that. Three years later, of course, we have Paul writing uh, his letter to Romans. And Romans is one of the most forceful, logical, and articulate letters that God has ever inspired. I mean, Paul wrote many, many uh, letters that we have in God's Word today, but Romans is a unique book. Briefly, we know uh, on the author of the book of Romans, we know it's Paul. Nobody can test this. The letter opens up with his name in verse 1. Uh, but I wanted to talk a little bit about Paul. Paul is a unique situation. Paul isn't an apostle, but he describes himself as one abnormally born. Why does he say that in 1 Corinthians 15, 8? Well, because while he was called by Jesus, just like all the other apostles, his calling was after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, right? All the others obviously began when Jesus was uh, walking the earth before uh, the church began after his resurrection and ascension. Another important point is that Jesus specifically calls Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And of course, what better place to go than the center of the Gentile world, Rome, right? So he wants to go there. And of course, Paul did love his fellow Jews and always stopped at uh, the synagogue in every place that he visited to appeal to uh, the Jews. And he talks quite a bit about that, his love for the Jews and trying to appeal to them uh, on behalf of Christ. Uh, the date and place of writing uh, of the book of Romans, Paul is likely writing this letter in the early spring of 57 AD. Paul was probably on his third missionary journey, ready to return to Jerusalem, while the offering uh, from the churches or with the offering from the churches of the poverty-stricken believer, for the poverty-stricken believers in Jerusalem. It's also thought that Paul is in Corinth, or has just left Corinth, uh, when he writes the letter uh, to the Romans. Now one thing I wanted to do real quickly, um, there's so much in this book, and I really, I had to be honest, I struggled with what do I share, what do we talk about? Of course, I'm supposed to pick one central theme, and I did, but there's so many great topics, and we'll get to that in a moment. But I wanted to cover a handful of some of my favorite verses and just well-known verses that we probably all know. Um, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Romans 6.23, everybody's familiar with that. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Revelations 8.28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Another great one. Romans 12.1 and 2, this is probably my single favorite, two verses I guess, uh, of all of the New Testament. Uh, I don't know why, but these two are just really uh, powerful for me. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. 
This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Powerful stuff. Romans 12, 21 simply says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's one of my favorites. And the last one here, Romans 14, 8. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Can't be said much better and, and more clear than that. Now there are several themes um, in the book of Romans. And if you're wondering, Jimmy, when are you going to get in the lesson? I'm almost there. I just wanted to give an overview. That was part of the assignment. Um, here are some of the themes that popped out to me, and I actually looked at how many times these words would appear in the book of Romans. And so you can see there for yourself, righteousness and righteous appeared 43 times, the most times. Right next to it was faith at 40 times. Grace, 21. Mercy, 13. And then save or saved, uh, salvation, 13 times. Uh, this was, these were huge themes. And I chose to uh, focus on... Um, the central theme of righteousness. Righteousness, and not just any righteousness, the righteousness of God. Paul very quickly gets into this theme in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. We read that earlier. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. What is he talking about there? Well, before we get into breaking that down, let's define the word righteousness. Uh, I'm going to give the layman definition real quick. It's not on PowerPoint. But to be righteous is, is simply to be right, right? It's the act of being right. Um, and in this context, obviously being right in the sight of God. That's what righteousness is. But uh, looking at uh, some of the more... Um, Official definitions, Merriam-Webster says, uh, acting in accord with divine or moral law, free from guilt or sin. Secondly, a morally right or justifiable, a righteous decision. Um, so there's Merriam-Webster's definition. The Greek word um, for righteousness actually um, uh, is dikaiousene. I practiced that all day long. Anyway, equity or justification. And the root word uh, of that is also um, dikaios, which is um, equi equ equitable, implication, innocent, or holy. Well, those are really interesting uh, ideas to kind of give us the context of when Paul talks about righteousness, what is he talking about? He is talking about the act of of being right in the sight of God, to that standard of justification, equity, that equality. Um, the righteousness Paul is talking about is what we receive from God that makes us justified in His sight. And so again, when we look at Romans chapter 1, verses 1, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 17, he says there, in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. It's revealed. What is he talking about there? He's talking about the fact that there is this righteousness 
that is revealed. And where is it coming from? It's coming from the gospel. Paul is saying there's a righteousness in the gospel, a way to be righteous that didn't exist before. Not really the way, but it's the way that we achieve that righteousness. It's not a new righteousness. The righteousness in God, the righteousness that God expects has never changed between the old law and the new law. But now there is a new way to find that position of being right in the sight of God, that righteousness, achieving and obtaining the position of being right in the sight of God, you can achieve that now through the gospel, and it's revealed through the gospel. Now, why does Paul need to qualify the righteousness that he's, uh, he's talking about in the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ? Well, because it's always been achieved, this righteousness in the sight of God in the past has been achieved by what? By the law, by keeping of the law. And that's all changed. And he's going to break that down here in in, in a moment. For thousands of years, mankind, specifically the Jews, obtained righteousness from keeping the law, from God's law. Paul continues this thought in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Paul says, But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now again, this righteousness he's talking about from God is apart from the law. It's it's, it's separate from the law. It's no longer a situation where you have to keep the law in order to be righteous. Righteousness now is through what? What does he say? It says, from grace. Why is righteousness, being righteous in the sight of God, so important for mankind? Why is it so important to be righteous in God's sight? Well, God's nature demands that He punish sin and unrighteousness. You see, if we're not right, if we've done wrong against God who has all authority, then He must punish us, punish sin. That would be the just, fair thing to do. Would you feel it's right and just for somebody who broke the law just to be let off and no consequences? I mean, if somebody killed a loved one of yours or if they, some terrible thing happened, you would want what we call justice. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that there's, the law is put out there and there are consequences if you break those laws. And God is no different. God is a God of law and He has set that law forth and you've got to do what God demands. And for those who do not, there are consequences. And that consequence is separation from Him. But righteousness is important because that is how we are saved. That's how we get to be with God. You see, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they were innocent without sin, and they got to be in God's presence. And I've always been convinced and convicted that that's what God wants. He created Adam and Eve, and He walked with them in the Garden. He spent time with them. He didn't create them and then go off like we do with our little fish aquariums or whatever and watch from a distance. No, he went and spent time with them and interacted with them, had an intimate relationship with them. And it was only because of sin and that relationship being broken that there was separation. But now through Jesus Christ, we have been brought near again. So God's justice demands that sin must be punished. 
Paul expounds on this in Romans chapter 5. This is a big section, so let's look at this together. Romans chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 15, but I'm going to give you a little background. This is a lengthy section. Um, He opens up the first verse, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we were not at peace with God. Why? Because we were enemies of God. We sinned against God. We rebelled against God. We opposed Him. And so um, we now have been justified. Our sins have been justified through faith, and we have peace with God. And Paul begins to talk about God's work to save man through Jesus, and uh, he compares that with the sin that came through Adam's trespass and the gift of salvation through Jesus' sacrifice. And then we pick up verse 15. Romans chapter 5, verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Let's pause there. So God has given us so many things there, but He's given us these things through Jesus. And specifically here He mentions that God has given us not only an abundant provision of grace, but He's given us the gift of righteousness. And through those things we can reign in life. Through Jesus. Picking up again in verse 18. Consequently, just as the result of the one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. There's that word. How are we made righteous in the sight of God? How are yours and my sin blotted out and covered up so that God Almighty doesn't see them and have to condemn us? It's through Jesus Christ. His blood covers our sins. His righteousness is our righteousness. Uh, And specifically there, through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Jesus obediently lived life without sin as a man on this earth so that His righteousness could be passed on to us. His blood covers our sins, blots them out, and God sees them no more. This makes us righteous in God's sight. The law was added, verse 20, as we close this section. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through what? Righteousness. To bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Think about that. How does grace reign? How is grace made abundant? How does grace rule in our lives? How does grace grow and increase its dominion in our lives? What's it say here? Through Righteousness. And all of that brings us to life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Righteousness is so important, and there's two senses that Scripture will talk about righteousness. Obviously, there's the righteousness of us trying to be faithful and doing what we can to obey God's Word, but can we truly be perfect and righteous in the sight of God in this human life, in this flesh? What's that? It's unattainable. It's unattainable. We can't. So, in a sense, we try to work to live righteously, but the righteousness that we can obtain that makes us perfect is something we never earn. It's something that we can't really merit, but it is a gift given to us. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So, how do we achieve righteousness in the sight of God? It's in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, here I want to break down and talk about some, some applicable things uh, in, in life today and things we debate concerning you know, Romans chapter 5 especially. has got a lot of debates, and I didn't want to get a whole lot into uh, some of it, but there's some really applicable things I think we need to talk about. And for sake of time, I'll uh, limit it to these two things. There's so many other things we could talk about, but... Uh, First, sadly, many Christians read Romans and struggle with the understanding of faith and achieving this righteousness in in God's sight and being saved. They want to embrace faith when it comes to salvation and righteousness, but many will reject other commandments of faith, like confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, repentance of sin, and especially baptism. They want to embrace faith, but they'll reject the other things that come in faith that are also taught. Now, do I believe Paul when he says we're saved by faith? Yes. But in that same faith are all these other things and commandments and things that we've got to look to and understand what their purpose is. It's that same faith that leads me to follow the other teachings in God's Word. I can't just say I'm saved by faith and stop there and say, well, nothing else is involved in my faith and and being saved and living for God. There's so many more other things that are detailed, uh, even in the book of Romans here. Uh, But many will quote uh, Roman passages and others uh, that talk about when Paul says you're saved by faith. Are we saved by faith, church? You bet. But is there more to it? Is there other things involved in this Christian life of obedience? Yes. There are still other Christians who tell me I'm trying to be saved by works. And usually that's connected to baptism. And there's this struggle of uh, the separation of work and faith. Um, now, I want you to know, and, and you probably feel the same way too, I don't know, but I have never believed because I was baptized that I have earned my salvation or that somehow I deserve to get to go to heaven to be with God for all eternity. There's no way. I don't, I don't believe that, and I don't think you do either. But yet that's what we'll be accused of. Because we believe that baptism is connected to God's saving uh, grace, to His work of saving us. No salvation, I believe, is a free gift of God given through Jesus Christ. So why did I get baptized back in 1987? Well, because Jesus said to, for one, in Mark 16, 16, all those who are saved will be, uh, uh, who are saved and are baptized. I'm sorry. All those who believe and are saved will be baptized. I can't quote Mark 16, 16. I need to take a nap or something. All right, moving on. Also, um, because it's where my sins were washed away is why I was baptized. Acts twenty two sixteen, 16, Paul's told me, don't wash your sins away. 
There's so many other passages that talk about this. It's so important for us to look into God's Word and to know what we believe and why we believe. And we need to respect, uh, this is a side note, but we need to respect each other in the church and outside of the church, people's faith, for them to figure it out. They've got to figure it out. Um, I can't come to someone and try to beat them over the head and say, this is what I believe and you need to understand and see what I believe and and I'm going to try to force you to see it the way that I see it. No, we need to let the power of God's word work in their life. And we need to respect them and say, look, I understand that you don't agree with me, but let's look at God's word because we both, most people you talk to, if they believe in God, they believe in God's word. And that ought to be a great foundation that we can share with anybody who wants to pursue faith in Christ. But getting into God's Word and saying, okay, let's read this. You tell me what you see. And, and I'll read it, and I'll tell you what I see. And then you can, you can begin that discussion. But it's so important for us to uh, consider those things of work and, and faith. And uh, Paul very clearly, I think, uh, explains some of these things. Faith, uh, uh, Paul deals with the subject of faith and works in Romans chapter 4. Let's look at that next. Romans chapter 4 is a lengthy uh, section there, so I didn't paste it into my PowerPoint. But Romans chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. Paul says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now let's pause. Paul didn't say Abraham did the work and he was righteous. What does it say? Abraham believed. He had faith and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 4. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man of whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Amen, church? Do you read that and go, wow, that's me. That is me. All of the ugly, embarrassing shameful sin and mistakes that I've made in this life. God knows them, or at least at one time knew them, but the blood of Jesus Christ covers them. Those transgressions are forgiven, and the blood of Jesus covers them, and uh, those uh, transgressions will never be counted against me. If you're in Christ Jesus, that's the promise we have. Paul says, faith is credited as righteousness apart from works, and that's so important. We need to realize in the context he's talking about is not living right. You still need to live your life in the righteousness and do right. But what he's saying is in the sight of God in a judgmental, uh, uh, in a judgment context, you can achieve righteousness in the sight of God and be saved. That's what he's talking about there. Romans 9, 30 through 33. Let's look at that. Romans 9... 30 through 33. Paul says, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? A righteousness that is by faith? 
But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Of course, we know that reference is to Jesus Christ. They stumbled over Jesus. They couldn't believe him. They chose not to believe him. So if the purpose of works in faith is not to obtain righteousness, then what's the purpose of works? Why should we do the work of God? Why should we do things by faith? Well, Romans 6.13. Let's look at that. Romans 6.13 through 18. Paul says there, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. What leads to righteousness? Obedience. Doing the work of God. Doing what he wants us to. When we obey and do what God commands us to do, it leads to what? Righteousness. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Brothers and sisters, it's not works of your faith that lead you to righteousness. It is God's making you righteous by faith that leads you to works of faith. You get what I'm saying? It is our faith that leads us to action. That's what James would say. We're not studying James, but you know, James says, I could show you what I believe by what I do. You show me your faith without deeds. Well, you, that doesn't make any sense. If you believe something, you're going to see the evidence of someone's life. And so that's why we have to live in righteousness and do the work of God. The Jews struggled with this, obviously. Uh, and I, I always feel bad... For the Jews, you know, um, do we know anything about having traditions and sometimes traditions are hard to change? Do we know anything about that? I don't know if we know anything about that, but Jews obviously had thousands of years of relationship with God by the law and keeping the law and lots. And not only God's law, they they loved it so much they added extra laws and and traditions that weren't even there uh, and unfortunately made a burden on the people. Uh, And Jesus uh, seemed to correct them numerous times about that. But in Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, Paul deals with this with the Jews. And there's some application for us today, and we'll talk about this. Let's see, it's 5 till, right, that this ends, class ends? All right, thank you. Romans 10, chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. There it is, Paul's evidence of how much he loves his Jews, his Jewish uh, brothers, his Israelites, and and his uh, fellow clan. He wants them to be saved. Verse 2, For I could testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they 
did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Boy, that is powerful. And it was tough for the Jews. It was a challenge. Jesus is the righteousness of God. And He is also the end of the law, according to to this passage. So everyone who believes can be righteous. It's no longer just for the Jews. It is for all who what? Not just all people. Not all people who believe in God, but all those who believe in the context they're being in Jesus. For all who believes. The Israelites, God people, did not know the righteousness that comes from God, according to Paul here, nor did they submit to God's righteousness. So who is Paul referring to here? He's obviously referring to Jesus. The Jews didn't recognize Jesus and refused to submit to Him and to this new covenant that was going to be established in His, his, his sacrifice. So why didn't the Jews submit to God's righteousness? Does Paul tell us? He does. He says, they sought to establish their own. So my question in pausing with this is this. Do we struggle with wanting to establish our own righteousness, our own rules? And I'm not not talking about just the church, but just us today, the people, the United States of America. Let's just focus on that. We won't even say the whole world. Do we want to make our own righteousness? We do this all the time, don't we? We struggle with who decides what is right and who who decides what is wrong. Well, I think, you know, and we fill in the line, right? Fill in the blank. Well, I think, and don't we have these conversations? Well, you know, you may feel this way, but I think, what's the better way to talk if we're going to talk about right and wrong? God's Word says this. The Bible says this. That's a better way to say it. And too many times we get into, well, I think this and I think that. And our language gives us away. You know what? Really, we shouldn't be so concerned with what we think. We should be concerned with what does the Word of God teach? What does it say? I think we've lost that. Because we live in a culture that you can have it your way and everything is about you and what you think. We, uh, if we had idolatry today, it is the individual, isn't it? individual to do whatever you want to do. And uh, that's a sad, sad commentary today on our culture. Do we have Christians today that can't see the righteousness of God found in Jesus Christ because they are too busy seeking to establish their own righteousness? Why do we have so many Christian churches in the United States of America today? Why are there so many different groups and variations and divisions of those who want to follow Jesus Christ? Because our allegiance and our commitment is not to the Word of God. It is to what we've always believed. And you know, we have been guilty of it too. And this is what I mean by this. If we raise up kids in our church to believe what we believe, but they don't have a clue why we believe it, they don't know where it's found in God's Word, is that a problem? Yeah, a huge problem. Because the reality is for human beings, and I was a youth minister for uh, 16 years, and you know, 
the books all tell us that they eventually get to a searching faith. Kids, people, human beings, we all get to that place developmentally where it's not just about faith, but we start to question everything in life, right? You know, up to that point before junior high, sometime in junior high typically is when it happens uh, for the early, more mature kids. But uh, I, I probably didn't do it till college. Um, but uh, I'm not very mature. But um, kids will begin to question everything. Now, before that, they want to be just like their mom and dad, right? And those are the great times, you know? They want to obey you and make you happy, and they, they, they like the songs you sing, and they like the, t- you know, all this good stuff. They want to be just like you. But then they get to that place where they want to be different. And they start questioning everything they've always believed. And if that happens in college, that's not a good place for parents and kids. It's better to happen in junior high and high school years. And you're blessed to have great uh, youth minister with Mike Coggill. I'm sure he, he uh, does a great ministry of helping families and teenagers do that. Um, we as a people here in the United States of America seem to be rejecting the knowledge and righteousness of God more and more. As a country, God has been removed from our schools, from our politics, our entertainment, starting to see it some in our hospitals. I mean, the list goes on and on. And God is being rejected and kicked out. We are currently rejecting God's creation with this gender identity stuff that's going on right now. That's a rejection of God, isn't it? He made them male in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Two genders. But how many genders does our culture want to say there is today? And there's a whole alphabet of things that I don't even have memorized. I don't even know how many there are. And why is that? It is because of the brokenness of sin. It is because people want to pursue their own righteousness, make their own rules, be their own God, and say, no, this is okay because I say so. And that's where we are. And so as we close... I want us to uh, take this focus that, that Paul gives us, that we can, anyone can, uh, by faith in Jesus Christ, achieve the righteousness of God through the gospel of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. Anyone and everyone can, and that's what we want people to know. As we close, I had a last slide here, the conclusion. Wrap things up. Righteousness is by faith and revealed in the gospel. Through Jesus' obedience, we are made righteous. My faith leads me to obedient works of God, and we need to do that. And lastly, we have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. You and I, brothers and sisters, we need to make sure that we heed the words of Paul to pursue that and acquire that relationship of righteousness through Jesus Christ so that one of these days when Jesus is sent to come and to claim us as his own, to take us home to be with him, that uh, we will get to go. We won't be told to depart, but we will be told, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we look forward to. Thank you so much for your time.